X-Ray. It's the Beer Vana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. With me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and The Windmere Way. And with me is Patrick Emerson, uh, economics professor at Oregon State University. And look at us introducing each other right off the bat. Uh, yeah. Well, because you told me to. <laughs> I was going to get to it early, but now I did it this way. But I don't think our script works very well. I think I should introduce myself and then you, or vice versa. But I think I should do that because it's weird. Your All script right, is well, weird. It's 100, only- 136 episodes, and I'm finally deciding that this intro sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems fine. We are uh, appropriately socially distant, recording in our separate homes. How's life in your part of the world? It's okay. We It's spring, right? So we had a, a snowstorm, then we had gorgeous sunny weather, and now we're back to kind of cold and rainy. And not now we're pleased. back to Oregon, which is nice. Yeah. Just kind of wet, wet, gray. Yeah, no, but it was a really nice uh, interlude of sun and warmth. Uh, and it's amazing. This is true pretty much lots of places that get a real winter. Uh, you know, as soon as the spring, the really nice spring weather hits, like everybody's outside. Yeah. It just kind of, uh, especially in COVID days, it just kind of, I don't know, it's a sign of hopefulness and it energizes me seeing people out and about. Yeah. It and makes me realize that we are part of a, a, a shared civilization and <laughs> there are others out there. <laughs> I, I, I am feeling such pent up uh, desire to get back to socialization and stuff. We when, when we had those sunny days, I could just hear eruptions of screaming and hollering in the neighborhood of young people, uh, you know, out doing fun stuff and just bursting out, vocalizing with joy. And I think there's pent up stuff. Uh, people, people, are, it's been a year. People are ready to get back and do normal life. I think, I think if we can get vaccination going, if we keep it, we keep it up, then hopefully we can avoid um, sort of getting walloped again by another, a new variant, but hopefully people will stay vigilant uh, wear your mask until it's time not to. Let, let me steer us back to uh, beer with a fun little piece of chatter for you. Yes. Chatter uh, away. Last night, I was drinking a, an IPA from a brewery that I won't mention because it wasn't a great IPA. Okay. It, was a, it was a West Coast IPA, and it, was, it tasted like 1998. It was very, very laden with caramel malt, uh, very thick, and therefore had a very high uh, balance point with extreme bitterness and uh it was extremely piney and i drank it anyway because it was kind of familiar and kind of pleasant and it occurred to me that there are certain beers even when i recognize they're not good examples or there's some maybe a flavor flaw in them that i still enjoy and continue to drink Uh, i actually even threw this out on twitter and i wondered there are others now you know i just have so much so little stomach space anymore for all these beers that i'm pretty harsh if a beer is not pleasing me down the drain it goes but i enjoyed that one last night and i wondered is there a beer style uh, or you know do you have examples of beers that you drink even though you can tell they're not that great because you're enjoying them well i, I mean i probably the same way that if it's if it's laden with hops uh that probably uh will cause me to drink it um, it, it, laden with hops in it, in at least in at least a way that I can detect. Like if it's piney, dank, uh, mm-hmm. you know, skunky hops, that's fine. Or if it's bright, citrusy hops. But yeah, hops can kind of can kind of uh, overcome the flaws, I suppose. In for for me, like I'll, I'll drink it anyway. 
Yeah, that's a good <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were having dinner and I was sitting there with Sally and we tasted it and we both we both gave it the thumbs down and then she watched me continue to drink it and she said, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> it's not good, but I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> so on the opposite spectrum, and I've harped on this a lot, so I won't belabor it, but uh, if it if there's just too much alcohol, then I just won't even. Um, now, even if it's a fantastic beer, if it's just too much alcohol, I'm not even going to bother because one, the alcohol I find displeasing, um, just the taste of alcohol, and two, the effect I find too onerous. <laughs> My old body, like yeah. at night, like at night, if it's like a nine percent beer and it's fantastic and there's twelve ounces of it, I'll just like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to get a headache and I'm going to feel tired. <laughs> yeah, uh, such yep. an old man. Totally. But, but, well, but by the way, speaking of being an old man, I'm currently drinking my my rehydration tonic my patented rehydration tonic because I, uh, I, I hit the gym i did my hour on the little elliptical so yeah. you got a rattler going got my rattler going good man i find them abhorrent but you do you <laughs> yeah i know that's because you're a layabout <laughs> actual beer drinker you don't need you don't need any rehydration <laughs> i ride my bike quite extensively thank you <laughs> all right uh should we actually get to the pod what you know are we? Is, is this thing on? Are, are we recording? Yeah, yeah, old man, old man. We do actually put out a podcast. <laughs> oh, I, oh, oh, my God! Did people were people listening to that? That's terrible. <laughs> but as we, as we probably talk, focus, as we talked about before we recorded, and I think I tweeted it on the on the Beervana Pod tweet. Uh, caveat emptor is the motto we stand behind, which is <laughs> which is stolen from Calvin and Hobbes. That's right, and it can be followed up quickly by uh, people get what they pay for. You get what you pay for. Yes, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, speaking of speaking of beer, speaking of beer podcast, uh, we have some fun for you today. Uh, we're pretty excited because we're going to talk about taxes. You know what's funny about your script is this is exactly the kind of song and dance I do when when we get to the taxes part of of my uh, public policy class. <laughs> exactly, and I just did it last week. So I'm like, hey, guess what? This week it's going to be all about taxes. How exciting! Uh, but usually they they actually they actually kind of enjoy it because there's a lot about taxes that aren't obvious to begin with. I don't know if that's going to be true of our podcast, but today we're going to be talking about taxes because a new bill arrived in the Oregon legislature to, to tax breweries at twice the level of the next highest state and like 86,000 times more than it used to be. Um, that's, you know, approximation, give, give, or, give or take one or two. And we thought it was a good moment to step back and look at taxes and the way they function in our economy, as well as the way they've shaped uh, they help, they've helped shape and guide the development of beer. Despite the dry subject, stick with us. This should actually be entertaining hour. And yeah, because uh, sin taxes, you know, taxes on booze and cigarette and beer, things like that, um, are a part of the landscape of taxes. And so we should talk about what they mean and why they're there and what they do. So we will. Uh, so, so get ready. Yeah, <laughs> go crack a beer and <laughs> settle in because we're gonna have a pot <laughs> about taxes. All right, all that soon, but first the news. Very big news broke two days ago as we record this. Deschutes Brewery has purchased Boneyard Brewing. Both are located in Bend and. Uh, founder Tony Lawrence was of uh, Boneyard was a longtime vet of Deschutes before starting Boneyard. According to reports, Lawrence will retain Boneyard's Bend Pub and the company's CBD soda. Deschutes, according to uh, founder Gary Fish, gets, quote, everything else. 
and he plans to scale up Boneyard for their big brewery. Um, although the terms were not released, we have also learned that Lawrence received an ownership stake in Deschutes. So this was really big news around here, and it's actually kind of national news since uh, Deschutes is a semi-national brand. Yeah, it's funny. I was about to say it's sort of local news, but it's actually not really. I mean, it's it's a big deal no matter no matter where you are. Uh, lots of people know Deschutes. Deschutes get Deschutes makes it around something like thirty some odd states. Yeah, one of us should have looked that up, but probably neither did. But yeah. <laughs> no, I actually saw this in a in a news report. It was thirty something, but I don't remember. Thirty seven, oh, thirty seven, maybe thirty six. So you know, I'm 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 good at ballpark figures. I'm an economist. Indeed. You know, I have no time for <laughs> no time for precision. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. By the way, just uh, as an aside, I am wearing my boneyard uh, t shirt today that, that you can all see if you look really closely. Uh-huh. At your podcast, you'll see that I'm wearing my boneyard, my boneyard shirt that was given to me, and you got one as well from uh, Tony Lawrence himself when we visited uh, Boneyard, and also visited the shoots in our little bend, a series of podcasts. So go back and look for those, um, and I'm sure Jeff, you've looked them up to tell the listeners uh, all of the <laughs> all of the right numbers, episode numbers. Yes, the Tony Lawrence is. Pod seventy nine and oh. Gary Fish is Pod seventy seven. Oh, I thought I stumped, I thought I would stump you. <laughs> very, very good, very good. But actually, those are relevant because though we have no particular insight more than anyone else who hasn't read news reports of the of the current deal, we do have a little insight into the background of these breweries. And uh, one of the things that was startling to us at the time about Boneyard is that Boneyard had grown to, and you'll have to refresh my memory, 20, 20 something thousand barrels of beer. Yeah, I think they were at 25 when we visited, and they were 30,000 in 2019 before the coronavirus hit. Yeah, and, and almost all of that went out in kegs. Right. He had a few, he was doing like a, a few like super special bottle releases, but basically, you know, 90, 99% or something was, was draft. They were basically an all draft brewery. It was just amazing. I mean, I mean, who's ever heard of that? You couldn't find Boneyard beer much in, you know, in package anywhere. Uh, and of course COVID. <laughs> yeah. And so it's no surprise that uh, Boneyard's really struggled uh, because they can't, it's not easy to suddenly pivot to packaging and just dis distribution through, um, through cans and stuff. So uh, that part made sense. And then the other part that made sense is that Deschutes has big, gleaming, beautiful, a uh, massive brewery in uh, Bend and probably a lot of excess capacity right now because their sales are down. Mm -hmm. uh, so it kind of makes sense. They also have lots of, you know, huge packaging lines, uh, both bottling and cans. And so they're ready to go to brew and package beer. And uh, so it kind of made sense. And then the last thing sort of, I suppose, the sort of the interpersonal, the personal side of the story is, uh, and, and again, you'll have to refresh my memory, but as I recall, Tony Lawrence was sort of an itinerant snowboarder and sort of showed up in Bend and started, I think, as a dishwasher at the original right. Bend Brew Pub. Yeah. And he was a very mechanical guy. And if you know anything about brewing, the guy who knows how to fix stuff and be an electrician is probably the most valuable person around. Right. Uh, so he he got involved in the brewing side and then eventually started his own brewery. And the Boneyard part uh, references the fact that his brewery is built from the sort of the, the cast-offs of other breweries, the boneyard pieces, the stuff that you throw in the back when you when you get a new boiler, you put the old boiler out and he grabs it. And so his his brewery was sort of a, 
a put together thing, <laughs> not a, uh, a, a gleaming new uh, design from scratch brewery. That's right. Although the, by the time we visited, he was on his second brewery and it was a pretty good looking brewery. Oh yeah. No, I mean, he knows his stuff and he knows good equipment. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he had grown, the brewery had grown enough that he had outgrown the original Boneyard Brewer, brew house. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it was a, you know, 30,000 barrels makes you one of the biggest breweries in America, uh, puts you in the top 5% or something. So it, it was a successful brewery. I think one of the interesting things that I was thinking about this later, I wrote a blog post on it. I didn't really mention this, but I don't know how many examples we have, maybe none, of a brewery where you have a, a guy who works at a brewery for a dozen years, then goes off and founds his own brewery, apparently stays in, uh, you know, close friends with the former brew house. Doesn't really, there's no bad blood there. Far from it. They seem to be friends. And then you have them come back into the same company. It, it's That's not usually how this goes. And I wonder how that might affect the way this partnership goes, you know, because we've, we've seen a, a number of these purchases um, they're not always that successful. So this is a slightly different dynamic. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. I mean, the the sort of economics from the sense of, you know, a brewery that needs to get its beer into packaging and is stuff suffering, and then a big brewer that's got a lot of excess capacity makes a lot of sense. But the, the path forward is not obvious. Um, you could brew a whole bunch of Boneyard beer at Deschutes, push it out maybe through your distribution channels, and uh, just try to ride that brand and see if you can make a go of it. I don't no. Uh, do you risk undermining the Deschutes brand? Does it matter at this point? It's not uh, clear exactly how it's going to work. And I, I suspect it might not be 100% clear to uh, to Gary Fish at Deschutes either, but I wish them luck because yeah. they're both great guys. I do too. And if, you know, if you're outside of Oregon, you don't know Boneyard very well, which would make sense. Um, they're, they're, a, they're a fun and lighthearted brewery. They make hop forward beers. Tony's sort of a card. He's one of these guys, uh, you find them in beer relatively often, who has a, a kind of uh, working class affect and, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't you know, he's kind of like has a, a little bit of a slacker vibe, um, <laughs> but it conceals a very keen mind uh, and, you know, a person who was able to, to build this impressive brewery. Um, and so it's uh, he, he's a really interesting character, and uh, I hope you get a chance because of this to try their beer. It's quite good beer. Yeah, I mean to build a thirty thousand barrel brewery uh, operation, successful one, is impressive enough. And then to, to be able to do it basically entirely on on draft is astounding. Because if you think about how you build a brand and not to have it out in packages is amazing. So basically, you've got such a good word of mouth, such a good uh, brand identity just from the beer drinkers themselves from the beer itself essentially there it was a time <clears throat> when you couldn't go into any bar anywhere without having rpm which is their sort of flagship ipa on on tap in oregon you just found it everywhere because it was so good and because uh, uh people were demanding it totally so uh i wish them both luck uh i think they're both great people um uh, the whole of, of Bend, the whole Bend Brewing ecosystem can sort of be traced to Deschutes as kind of the the godfather of almost all of it, and uh, so it's um it's kind of nice. I'm hoping that this is a way in which that sort of the next evolution of that relationship happens, where they can kind of help each other out. Yeah, me too. And it'll in any case be interesting to watch. So we will keep our eye on that. Okay. Well, so um. Yeah, we don't. I don't want to keep people waiting because I know they tuned in for taxes. So let's get I to know. taxes. 
They're drumming. Their hands are drumming their steering wheels, waiting. So we're going to talk about, talk about taxes in general, but we are going to, uh, as a launching point, we'll talk about why we why we're talking about this today, and that's because a couple of days ago, uh, a few days ago now, two members, and by the time you listen to this, a week or two ago, <laughs> two members right. of the Oregon House introduced HB thirty two ninety six, which was a. Uh, uh, piece of legislation that would increase the excise tax paid on a barrel of beer from $2.60 to $72.60, which would make it nearly double the next highest state's excise tax and well over 10 times the national median uh, and a 28 28 times, so maybe not 8,000, but a 28 times increase over the current levels. Uh, This comes at a time when the beer industry is struggling through the global pandemic and less than a month after a recent cannabis tax went on the books to treat drug addiction, uh, so a dedicated tax, and we'll talk about uh, that because this excise tax is meant to go directly to uh, uh, addiction services. Yep. So uh, let's talk about taxes, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it seems a little bit boring, but there are uh, some really fascinating things, like you know, taxes are super ancient. Um, there, I'm sure that you, 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 you just mentioned that they are something you cover, uh, as, as a professor of economics, they're certainly, they certainly affect the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually affect the way beer developed. And we'll talk a little bit about that. That's kind of interesting. We can talk about this idea of recouping costs, um, and, uh, how beer taxes have been, you know, how they affect American breweries. Like there's a lot of richness here actually. And it's, uh, it's they're they're kind of important um, and and in my view kind of interesting. So let's get into that. And I'm I'm going to throw it to you first. You're the econ guy. You want to kind of get us started on how what you know we we know functionally you, you tax something to get revenue to fund uh, a government agency. You know some some part of the government. Yep. Yep. But you're taxing you're taxing revenue. So that means you're in the you're you're screwing with the economy. So, do you want to do you want to tell us how all that works? I assume that there's some pretty interesting stuff going on here. Uh, well, yeah, I suppose on your based on your perspective. Well, so I mean, obviously, you hit the main point, which is you tax to raise revenue generally, but there you can also tax to change behaviors, which is a big part of how we think about taxes on things like alcohol and cigarettes and stuff. But in general, yes, uh, taxes are there. They're to raise revenue. There's lots of ways you can, can tax. Uh, and in fact, the states of Oregon and Washington are a good sort of um, example. So Oregon has an income tax, but no sales tax. And Washington has no income tax, but a sales tax. And so they raise revenues in very different ways. Both of those have their sort of pluses and minuses. The thing about taxing on sales, on consumption, is that you then distort markets. Um, and so we talk a lot about sort of how markets are distorted and and what are the, uh, the costs of distorting it that way. And then the second big part of taxes is the way that politicians sell taxes in terms of who is being charged has really nothing to do with the way that taxes actually impact the economy. And so we can talk about that a little more in a little more well- detail as well. Yeah, I'm curious about that uh, because you know we do as voters and citizens we hear so much about this. The tax debates are endless, and so you have uh, you know e- even most countries you have a, a party that's pro-tax and a party that's anti-tax. Mm-hmm. So yeah, talk a little bit about uh, go go deeper on that one. 
<laughs> okay. Well, so anytime you tax something, and this is also includes uh, income taxes as well, but let's just stick with sales taxes or taxes that, that uh, affect consumption goods. That'll keep the conversation a little bit clearer. So anytime yeah. you do that, you create this, this distortion. Distortion is the following. The, what consumers pay for a good and what uh, producers receive for a good. And the tax is that wedge that sort of uh, the tax is what gets in between that. And what happens if you can think of uh, sort of visualize your uh, your basic high school economics class? I suppose if you had one, you know there's a supply curve that comes from the producers and demand curve that comes from consumers, and they meet, uh, they cross, and that is your equilibrium price and quantity. Well, when you put a tax in there, that decreases the quantity and puts this wedge between the price paid and the price received, and that we call. Uh, drum roll, please. Deadweight loss. That's the amount of surplus that gets lost. This is the amount. This is the the sort of. In, if we're going to use beer as our example, it's the beer that would get exchanged that producers would make and buyers would consume willingly, in the absence of a tax. Um, but because there's a tax there, that drives a wedge and creates that deadweight loss, meaning that there's less beer made, and people pay more for it, and re producers receive less. Wow, that's that seems less like a neutral. Uh bit of language there than I would expect it coming from the uh, science-oriented uh, field, but well, there you go. Well, no, that's the cost, right? That's the cost side. And the, the benefit, though, is then you've raised a whole bunch of revenue. And what you do with that revenue, uh, presumably, hopefully, in a perfect world, helps society in a way. It gets it pays for things, you know, if it's a general fund, it pays for uh, schools and roads and uh, right. and firefighters and police officers and so on and so on and so on, right? So, uh I'm just telling you the, the, the sort of the market side. So that's how you raise revenue and then the revenue gets, you do all kinds of stuff with. And so the cost of the tax is balanced by the fact that that revenue is being directed toward good things that the public needs. Very good. Well, before we get too far down the road and in order to kind of fortify myself for, for this <laughs> that's true. discussion. That's true. If we're going to talk about taxes, we should have a beer. We should definitely have a beer. I'm going in. <laughs> by the way, I have to say, as I, as I open my beer, um, uh, we have a famously uh, uh, divergent glassware game where I have like these old like shaker pint glasses that have old logos and stuff that I've picked up from places. And you just have this amazing uh, array of glassware for every right, right thing for the right beer. A lot of it because you're given it. Um, Correct. But I just want you to know that actually thanks to you because you gave me like a little stemware thing. That was really nice. And then uh, I was... Uh, skiing on Mount Hood and stopped at uh, the Freem Family Brewers, uh, sponsor of your blog, you, former sponsor of, former sponsor of the podcast, and got a couple of nice, lovely glasses from them as well. These sort of long—I don't even know what you call these. I kind of think of them sort of as pilsner glasses, but who knows? So I just want you to know that as I pour this beer, I'm pouring it into an elegant, elegant glass now, not just my old, the old crappy shaker glassware. Yeah, I do have yeah, these so English English pint glasses, which I love. A little, a little bit of breaking the third wall uh, for the listeners out there. We do this on a program called Zencaster, which is audio only, and so I can't actually look at your cool glass. And right, see that's why what I'm painting is, you this. I'm painting you this verbal picture of my beautiful Pilsner glass with the gold frame lettering. And, uh, and I'm trying to tell the listener that I would happily tell you what kind of glass it is if I could see it, but I can't. Oh, oh! You mean my thing? Yeah, I don't know. It's like it's like clear because it's made of glass, and it's um, kind of cylindrical because it holds liquid. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how it goes. 
Boy, All right, what are you drinking? Could we, could we pay you the big bucks? All right. Uh, I, I'm drinking I'm drinking a beer from uh, a joint in your neighborhood. It's actually, I think, in Westmoreland. But um, I'm drinking a Unicorn Brewing. Wow. Czech Dark Lager. That's my... Which is... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, my buddy's around the corner, and they also have a, a homebrew shop, so... They do indeed, and they, they actually... The owner there is Zach, who was actually a commenter on a recent podcast. Everybody's making Czech Dark Lagers. I personally take a huge amount of credit because I was one of the first American writers to really promote these. I wish people would call them tamaves or chernays, but, you know, one step at a time. And now Portland is awash in these, and I, I, I per, I'm personally taking credit. And you should all send me Czech Dark Lagers so I can <laughs> you like sample them. <laughs> them and judge them. And uh, you, you don't have to be in Portland. I'll drink them from wherever, but uh, I, I'm they're they're fantastic uh, uh, to drink, and they're also – it's really amusing that all of a sudden there's this little mini wave. So that's what I have. It's um, it's very dark, and uh, mine is very dark and roasty. I would say typically roastier than Czech Dark Lagers are, huh. uh, ex- except that Budvar makes one that's, that's almost this roasty. So there is actually a uh, – uh, precedent. So there you go. It's a nice beer though. And I got a four pack and this is beer number two and I quite enjoy it, especially on a rainy day like today. What are you drinking? Nice. Um, I'm actually drinking something that uh, uh, comes from you. So uh, a while ago, I stopped off at your place and you uh, plied me with a bunch of beer, which I greatly appreciate. But one of the beers, actually a, a series of beers that you gave me that I had no pre prior, prior information about was from a brewery called Duinell, uh, Duinell Country Ales from Goldendale, Washington, which is sort of down the gorge, right? Like past the Dalles, I think even. It is, um, that's right. Yeah, uh, and uh, all of the beers you gave me were types of, they're all farmhouse saisons. Um, and I have drink in the pa- drunk in the past, Ashfall, which is a dark cherry saison, which was fabulous, by the way. Like, yeah, really, that was a good one. really good. Uh, this the dark cherry was very subtle, um, but lovely. Uh, also, a table saison, which was a four point two percent, but incredibly full mouthfeel. So, I'm very excited to now try the sitting pretty, which is just a sour saison. But they know how to make saison, uh, and I'm a little afraid because. That's been tried. It seems like their breweries mostly farmhouse ale saisons. I hope they they find a good audience. So, so I'm here to kind of pump them up because they make astounding beers. Yeah, they really do. Uh, I have written and talked about them a little bit in the past. I don't think on the podcast though, so that's cool. Um, yeah, I don't read anything you write, so. Yeah, you wouldn't know. But yes, that is what they specialize in. I do believe, it, you know, they have a tap room, but it's mostly been closed for the last year. And when you go into the tap room, I think they have a couple of other beers, you know. They might even make an IPA. <laughs> they got to make an IPA. Come on. Right. But this is what they're <laughs> – this is, this is what uh, Justin Lee, the brewer there, L-E-I-G-H, mm-hmm. not L-E-E. Like Vivian. Uh, that's Exactly. That's what uh, that's what he likes to make, and that's where he puts all his energy in. So these are the really the beers he, he likes. So tell me about it. I, that he gave us two each, and I shared my half with you, but I haven't had that one yet. I had exactly the same two that you've already had. <laughs> Great minds think alike about what go first. So this is actually, I guess so. This is actually um, uh, uh, very typical of the other, especially the table saison, in the fact that he's getting a very sort of lemony ester. Uh, very citrusy, lemony ester on top. Mm, um, nice. Yeah, it's a really lovely, very quaffable, 
uh, it's slightly heavier than the than the table saison, which I thought was truly amazing because it's you know low alcohol, which as you know is good for me. <laughs> right. Uh, but it, just uh, incredibly flavorful, very rich, full mouthfeel. So this is actually very similar to that. Nice. Mm. Yeah these these are they're really nice beers, and I uh, I actually called Justin up so we could talk and I could hear what was going on. We talked for quite a while about how to communicate, how to get, how to get people to put this in their mouth. Uh, and then, you know, if he could do that, I think the beer would, would do the rest, but it's, it's challenging because people don't like the word Saison. They don't know what it means. You would put the word sour on there. That's challenging. People don't want to drink a sour beer, even though a lot of these are no more acidic than a, a glass of Chardonnay and we don't call Chardonnay, a, you know, sour, but um, acidity is a big part of those kinds of wines. So, well, you should, well, beer writers should get on that. You should come up with a new term for it. This one is this one. In you Buffalo, know, I'm totally buffaloed by it. <laughs> this one is is this is the quote sour saison, and it is sour. Um, it does have an extra tartness that okay. I quite I quite appreciate, uh, especially with that sort of lemony ester that's on top. Um, but it's uh, but it's kind of a, a typical sort of cloudy rustic saison. It's quite light. Um, and uh, has a nice, um, a nice malt base that's pretty neutral. Yeah, it's just lovely. Very cool. You can find them in the Northwest, both in in, or- in Oregon and Washington. So outside of that, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, you can, maybe you can figure it out. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about the history of, uh, before we get back to Oregon, uh, to talk about the history of uh, beer taxes. I thought, yes, I saw that on the script and I'm actually really excited about this part. I want to hear about this. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is not new, (laughs) it turns out. So the oldest case that we know about goes to Egypt. uh, And uh, so I've heard of different different, uh, versions of this story. And one uh, involves Cleopatra, who uh, (laughs) was the first person to... Uh, to do a tax, but really, um, I, I'm not sure that I couldn't verify that. So let's not go too, too, too strongly into that. But, but you know, the, the Egyptians had the same idea everyone else had, which is, hey, a lot of people like this beer, and uh, if we took a little margin off of that, we could help fund our armies and our roads. Uh, you know, or probably didn't have too much to fund at that point, but uh, it would be really easy because people would be willing to pay a little bit more because they like that beer so well. So she was the first one to, or the Egyptians were the first ones to uh, tax beer. And, and you know, Egypt, we haven't t- really talked about Egypt too much, but they were the first great beer brewing culture, even more than the Sumerians. The, the Egyptians really had a, you know, super impressive infrastructure for beer brewing. Mm-hmm. So it makes it makes all kinds of sense to me. If you, anytime you have that, you have a politician who's taxing it. It's just it's automatic. <laughs> uh, another really amazing one. This is probably my favorite story of the whole thing. Is the Groot wrecked? So it, in the uh, around the year one thousand, the Holy Roman Empire had its, you know, it has its big infrastructure needs to be funded, and the emperor uh, came up with a pretty clever scheme about how to tax breweries. And it goes to show, and maybe you, when we get back to the taxing, you can kind of talk a little bit about how regulations fit into this, because mm-hmm. sometimes you can trap people into make in, into doing a tax in a way, and that's that's what he did. He he forced 
he he licensed the the ability uh, mm. for certain people to create mixtures of herbs called Groot, uh, which were used in in uh, beer making. Mm-hmm. So so the Grooters had their own. Uh, they had like a, a special dispensation or license to make these things. Uh, and for that, uh, they kicked a little bit back to the Holy Roman Emperor. Right. And uh, that became a way of taxing breweries. And it lasted over five centuries. And when inevitably the switch to hops happened, there was one called the Hüppigeld uh, or hop tax, which was uh, kind of a similar follow-up um, that, that went uh, after that. And then one last example, actually there's maybe, I'll mention one thing after this, but another one is the, what the absence of taxes does. And this is also an effect, which is kind of fascinating. Um, in the 16th century, Hoogarden is this town in Belgium. And there were two, uh, principalities, Liège and Brabant, Brabant, uh, who had, you know, who taxed all the breweries in, uh, the towns under their control, and Hoogarden fell right in between them. It was this little seam, and as a consequence of there being no tax there, Hoogarden <laughs> became this massive uh, <laughs> site of brewing because all the brewers went there so they could avoid the taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there were as, as it's a tiny town; it's like you know ten thousand people. And at one point, there were thirty-eight breweries in the mid seventeen hundreds because they were not being taxed. And of course, then they could you know they could sell that beer more cheaply uh, in the the areas of Liège and Brabant that uh, that were being taxed. If they yeah, so you could almost not afford you could almost not afford not to be there, right? Exactly. And then the last thing I'll mention, and this is something we've talked about a lot, is the way that the British taxed beer uh, by ABV, which created a bifurcation of mm-hmm. uh, uh, strengths, so that the cheapest, weak, the weakest beer was cheap, and that created uh, a bigger market for the cheaper beer, which created more popularity for cheaper beer, which made a uh, 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 weaker beer, I should say, which mean meant that the more popular beers in Britain have always, you know, have for almost a hundred years been the weaker beers. So, uh, you know, taxes can also shape things that way as well. So anyway, they've been going on for a very long time and they've been shaping the beer world. I could talk, there's, there's, there's many other taxes we could talk about, but those are some good examples of different ways that uh, taxes affect things. Yeah. And the British beer taxing by alcohol content is a good jumping off point because uh, let's talk about sort of the idea of taxing alcohol as kind of a sin tax or as an appropriate response to the social costs of alcohol consumption. Yeah. So first thing is that if if your if your focus is on correcting that sort of cost of alcohol consumption, then of course the right thing to tax is the alcohol itself and not beer. Um, so just to your point, uh, that's the right that that would be the right thing to do. Um, and well, and I'll talk about behavioral responses in a second, but um, but that's correct, and that's kind of sim- similar, not not just similar, but it's pretty much the same thing as saying you know we should tax carbon itself and not all the activities that sort of use carbon. But if you really want to get at the the, the true uh, source of the true cost um, for climate change is carbon, then let's tar- carbon the tax the carbon itself, and then anything that uses carbon therefore will have the, sort of that tax built in. So. Uh, 
I have a little list. I'm not sure what the right order is, but I think actually before I talk about sort of the um, uh, the idea of, of of taxing something with a social cost, I just want to make a couple of points, if if you'll allow. I invite. <laughs> so we we alluded to this before. Um, uh, yeah, I think this is the right way to start. I think that. Uh, one thing that's really important, and especially when you're talking about people who uh, propose taxes, and I think in a few years ago, the state of Oregon uh, uh, enacted this corporate tax, and it was a tax on corporate revenues in the state of Oregon. They said, well, you know, consumers don't need to worry because we're going to be taxing these big, rich corporations, and you know, consumers will never see it. But sort of the, the number one rule in taxation and economics is that taxes never 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 uh, sort of stick where you put them, right? Right. Ta- taxes get spread, and in economics we call this the difference between the statutory incidence of the tax. So I'm going to charge brewers a, a, a fee based on every barrel of beer they brew, uh-huh. uh, and the economic incidence, which is the true. Uh, difference in the price of beer paid and the price of beer received relative to what was before. So in other words, how much of that of that extra cost for brewers is going to be absorbed by the brewers themselves and how much of that extra cost is going to be absorbed by consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, and what's interesting is that it doesn't matter where you put the tax, that distribution, that economic incidence is the same. So whether I charge brewers uh, or whether I charge consumers a sales tax on a pint of beer, you get exactly the same effect. It doesn't have any difference um, because the differ- because the equilibrium in the market is simply that tax, right? right. Is, is that wedge that difference between the price that the quantity demanded at the price re- at the price paid and the quantity supplied at the price received. So that's not going to make any difference. It doesn't matter whether you charge brewers or consumers. It's going to have an effect, right? So, so. Uh, if you're going to increase the excise tax on beer, then part of that's going to be borne by consumers and part of that's going to be borne by producers. How much each one bears depends on what we call the elasticity of the of the curves, how, how sensitive to prices are supply and demand. That's a little more uh, inside baseball than we need to get. But uh, the, the key takeaway is that it really doesn't matter. So if you're going to say, I'm going to be taxing brewers, don't worry about that uh, on the consumer side, that's wrong um, and vice versa. So can I can I ask another question about the way this functions? You mentioned yeah. uh, um, uh, incentives. Mm-hmm. Am I right in thinking that if you if you force uh, through regulation or taxes uh, prices to go up, that has a that has a a pretty strong effect on the sales? Is that right? Like we we think you know every time these things come up, they'll say, oh, it's a dime a a dime a bottle or something. Um, and that's the, so small, the, right? <laughs> yeah. The implication being that this couldn't, po- nobody would possibly make a buying decision based on this, but that's, that's not what we find. Am I no, right no, about no, that? No. no, that's completely wrong. Of course. <laughs> at all, at all. I mean, uh, everybody likes to think in anecdotes, right? This part of what we know as behavioral econ- economists that people use heuristics, right? Or they just think they just take shortcuts. And so you might think, yeah, you know, if the pint costs an extra 20 cents, I'm probably not going to change my behavior, uh, but over time and across many many people, those behaviors do change. Um, you might have a sort of a fixed budget for going to the pub, and so you maybe go to the pub one less time a year. Right? It's not mm-hmm. a big deal, but it it all adds up across a whole economy. So people do re- react to prices, and that in fact is exactly what we call elasticity: is how much people change change their quantity consumed based on the prices. And so this is two two things I'll I'll say about this because this is a good 
a good lead into two things. One is you talked about the pharaohs in Egypt saying, hey, you know, this is something everybody loves, let's tax it. The reason they tax that is because it's not just something everybody loves, but something that everybody will keep consuming despite the fact that you're going to increase the price. So it's probably something with a relatively low elasticity. People are going to, you know, back in the day in Egypt, maybe that was like one of the few pleasures of life is getting to have drink a beer. So you're going to make sure you're going to make sure and have that beer, right? <laughs> and especially right. if there's nothing else. So that's one of the things about elasticity. If there's easy substitutes, then you can substitute away, which is one critical thing. If we're going to get back eventually to circle to this uh, beer tax, if you tax beer itself, then it's not just how much people will alter their consumption up and down of beer because of that total cost, but it's how quickly they'll switch to seltzers to, well, I don't know if actually seltzers might be included in the beer tax, but to wine, to spirits, to other things, cider. Uh, <laughs> so that's another issue. And then flipping to the other side, <laughs> side I'm trying not to jump around too much, uh, but there's a lot of issues here. Uh, is the idea that we want to discourage some behavior. So this is the syntax idea. So so we're talking about behavioral responses right. in both ways. So how, how quickly will people change their actual consumption? And, and uh, the whole point of a syntax is precisely because people respond to price, uh, to incentives from prices, right? So you increase the price and people will do less of that thing. You know, it's one of the reasons why we tax cigarettes so much, not just because, you know, not just because, uh, right. um, uh, they're uh, um, uh, they're an easy thing to tax, but also because we like to discourage smoking because we think smoking is bad and so smoking has a lot of social costs. And we'll right. talk about exactly the calculation of social costs in in a minute. But but uh, uh, but that's the key, right? So the uh, uh, part of the motivation for a particular syntax often is: look, we'll get all of this revenue to support some kind of good thing. Right, maybe drug and alcohol addiction services. Um, in the case of Oregon, uh, and so all this money comes from people continuing to drink to drink beer uh, despite the tax. But then we'll also get this big behavioral response. We'll try to get people to drink less. Um, uh, uh, and and one of the one of the many cautions I'll talk about if when, once we talk about the bill specifically is that exactly that is that just because you if you only tax one thing if you're not taxing the alcohol itself and you're trying to attack alcohol then people will very easily find other ways to to consume alcohol yeah and we, we can talk about the Oregon thing it's a of course there's quirks in all this stuff and I think the people who craft these laws don't understand the the lessons you're describing nearly as well as they should but anyway continue. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stay as neutral as possible because you know, whatever we do these things all the time. We do have excise taxes on beer. We tax gasoline. We tax tobacco. We do all these things for particular reasons. Um, and I guess I, I guess I can quickly <laughs> talk about that too. So you know, in the case of gasoline, it's probably a lot to do with the carbon uses, but it also has to do with the fact that uh, cars uh, wear out roads and so often it gets dedicated to transportation and stuff. So I'll make a, a sort of a quick parenthetical, which is I think we get a little bit uh, into a case of um, limiting ourselves and kind of chasing our tail and not, and, and, and not allowing ourselves to be efficient if we keep uh, having dedicated taxes for a dedicated outlet. Right. I get really concerned and grumpy about that because uh, society's needs change, the way we address things in society change. And if you have a dedicated tax revenue that's funding one thing, uh, then you don't have any flexibility about how you're going to best maximize the use of society's resources across a whole bunch of competing 
needs. Yeah, I, I was working with a nonprofit, and uh, they had all these little funds for different things. And we had a, a, a good financial person come in and say, you got to get rid of these funds and just try to make sure that everybody gives it to you so you can pop it in the general fund and you have maximum flexibility, um, yes. which is which is the general, you know, the Oregon general fund is the, is the bucket that most of our funds go into. And, and then the legislature, legislature can choose how to allocate those funds much more broadly. Once you start limiting this, then you're, you're kind of stuck. Yeah. 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 My, my classic example in Portland is they had this leaf tax for a while, which taxed certain properties in certain neighborhoods that had a lot of trees, uh, uh, a levy to to uh, sweep the streets of the leaves. But of course, everybody uses the streets. And once you start doing these kinds of specific taxes for specific parts of the city, then then you know uh, who knows where it ends? Like for example, I live in a low crime area, so I should pay less for my police than the people in the high crime area should pay, uh, which is you know absurd, right? So it's part of the shared responsibility um, right. more, morally, I think. Right. Okay, so let's talk about then the, um, the idea that we correct social costs through taxation, which is a, which is an old and popular idea in, in economics. And, and uh, I was very happy that in your blog post, you used the term Pagovian taxes, because that's what we call these. I learned it from to you. Give, <laughs> to give an example, a carbon tax would be a Pagovian tax uh, in the sense that when I use, when I drive my car, I'm suffering my personal cost of the gas and the wear and tear on my car and so on, but I'm not taking into account the cost on the environment or the climate, let's say, from the carbon I'm releasing into the atmosphere. And so by charging a, a tax on gasoline, that's equivalent to the cost that I'm imposing um, on, the, on, the, uh, on the climate, then you can sort of correct that uh, essentially a, a, a market failure, an externality in, in, the, in the parlance. And I'll therefore start making sort of efficient decisions. Like it, it'll make it more expensive and I'll start thinking about ways in which I can drive less and, um, and do other things. And that's what we call a Pagovian tax. And it's efficient. It's a great uh, uh, thing in the eyes of economics because it sort of restores efficiency to the market outcome. So you're not forcing people to choose less gas but you're essentially causing that to happen through the higher price. Right. And and, and that and, and these aren't oh, ab these aren't abstract costs either. We just had this giant ice storm here and you know as as climate change gets worse the state will have many more uh, severe weather in instances, uh, which are actual real cost to the state which they don't have the money for because uh, you know they're these are outlier incidents. So you you in your example you would charge more to pick up the cost of those uh, problems. Yeah, well, that's what's interesting because the tax itself just cre creates an increase in the price, and that creates people to behave in ways in which they sort of internalize those costs. Right? I realize now that what I do, or I have to realize because I have to pay for it, the damage I'm doing to the climate. Uh, but the other hand, the other part of that is that it raises a lot of government revenue, and that's one of the part of the carbon tax is what do, what exactly do you do with that revenue? Do you focus? You know, how do you? Use it to sort of defray the cost of climate change. You use it to to sort of fund the things that help us adapt to climate change, to green energy, things like that. But uh, but the other side of that is uh, uh, how do we know precisely the cost? And with car carbon, it's one of those big questions, right? Because 
there's these global impacts and these impacts not just on this generation but on future generations so there's lots of implications All right very hard to, very hard to calculate <laughs> but let's bring it back to because this is part of the motivation of this particular bill so let's bring it back to beer and alcohol right and there are certain social costs associated with alcohol that we think are important potentially uh, so if i drink beer and i am unhealthy or i uh, uh, suffer costs because uh, you know I don't know, I run my car into a tree or or do other things, then those are private costs. And so we don't have to worry so much. What the social cost part of it is, uh, do I uh, run into somebody else and cause damage to them or uh, hurt them? Do I impose a cost on society by showing up in um, uh, uh, publicly funded health you know, treatment facilities and things like that? Um, those are the social costs potentially of alcohol. Do I lose my job and end up on unemployment? Uh, but yeah, well, okay. So that's a little bit. You have to be very careful when you cal- calculate these things, uh-huh. though. It's not. It's not always like. For example, suppose I run into uh, somebody else's car and I damage their car, but I have insurance, and so my insurance pay f- pays for it, right? And I have to. I have to buy insurance because the state mandates it. So suddenly, that's not a. a a social cost anymore. That's a private cost. Like I'm, I'm funding that cost. Um, uh, uh, not, not saying that all those costs don't matter. Right. But I'm just saying you have to be really careful about what social, what's a true social cost and what's a private cost. So it, it's, it's easy to sort of associate anything that happens with alcohol and say that that's a cost of alcohol. But, but, but wouldn't, um, but in my example, if you had a, a let's say you had a, a society that had a very high rate of alcohol, uh, addiction, wouldn't you mm-hmm. expect to see lower productivity and higher rates of unemployment other things that the state might have to pick up on uh, relative to a country where you had very low rates of alcoholism? So yes and no. So yes, the part that the society steps in and says, we're going to compensate you for the fact that you can't find a job. Uh, yes. The fact that I'm a low productivity individual and I don't get as much money as I otherwise would. I can't work as long as I otherwise would. I can't uh, I'm not as successful as otherwise would be. That's a private cost because I'm going to see that in the fact that I'm not getting as much money, right? Gotcha. I'm not getting paid as much. So that's the, that's actually a good example of how to separate the private and the social cost. Gotcha. So there are certainly social costs. I'm not trying to talk, to talk those away, but I'm just saying that sometimes in these public policy debates, it's very easy to just say, well, alcohol causes this, it causes accidents, it causes low, lack of productivity, it causes people to show up and drug out and alcohol addiction services and things like that. So the extent to which you know you can charge people and they'll pay for the drug and alcohol addiction services, the extent to which they see the cost of low productivity by having a low wage, and so on and so forth, those are the private parts, and then the social parts are the ones that really do sort of spill over into other other people. Uh, the other thing to say is just if you look at uh, uh, if you say uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, um, you know, a hundred auto accidents happened every month where alcohol is involved. If you attribute all of that damage and all of that cost to alcohol, you're sort of making this counterfactual assumption that no one would ever do anything, uh, no one would ever have an accident in the absence of alcohol, which is probably not right, right. either. So, right. so there are a lot of, uh, I just wanted to point out that there are a lot of very, it's very tricky to really come up with these true social costs. So if you're trying to be a Pagovian and charge exactly the right tax, that's a really hard target to, to hit. And it, uh, with beer, it, it gets blended in, in these taxes. It gets blended in with this this other objective, which is to drive down uh, consumption for 
maybe moral grounds, the syntax thing is uh, often less associated with harm and more uh, just social opprobrium, which is those are not identical. Yeah, and it's politically easy, right? That's an easy thing to get a tax on because everyone. Um, you can sort of rally people around this idea that we're going to tax this sort of bad activity that people just choose to do. And rather than sort of taxing something that's like more essential, um, you know, tax on, on uh, food or something. Right. Well, uh, we should bring this back to beer uh, and, yeah. and just, just mention a few things about beer that are interesting. One of the, so the way we tax beer in the United States, and I'm not, quite as clear on how we tax uh, wine and liquor. There are those taxes too. They're different. They're based on different uh, different things. The mm-hmm. way we tax beer is we tax the producer only. Always we tax the producer. We do that at, which is to say the brewer. We do that mm-hmm. at the federal and also most state levels. I think, I don't know that there's a state that doesn't have a beer tax. So these are over and above what uh, these companies pay for their regular taxes. And they, I, I think most of them, or all of them pay uh, two taxes: the federal and the state tax. And the state right. the state taxes vary radically. Uh, <laughs> we were looking at these numbers, and uh, if you look at a per gallon tax, Tennessee's is a dollar twenty nine per gallon. Which you know, there's <laughs> it's like eight pints in a gallon. You know, I mean, that's a substantial cost. Alaska's a right. dollar seven. Hawaii's ninety three cents. North Carolina is sixty two cents. Alabama's fifty three percent. Fifty three cents. But interestingly, the U.S. median, that is to say half or above and half or below, and in this case it is exactly 25 or above and 25 or below, uh, is 20 cents. Um, so and It looks to me, and Wyoming is at 2 cents a gallon, by the way, speaking of the difference. That's right. Tennessee, $1.29, Wyoming, 2. Yeah, and, and Oregon is 8. Uh, so, you know, there's they, they kind of they, – they sort of range, but they, they tend to cluster at a – you know, if you look, if you think they just, it's a straight line from uh, 20 cents up to $1.29. It's really not like that. It's kind of a more of a hockey stick. Um, and of course that affects, uh, well, I shouldn't say of course it's, it seems like if you're a brewer in Tennessee, going back to my example from, uh, who garden, uh, you're at a disadvantage, uh, the Tennessee brewers would seem to be at a disadvantage nationally. <laughs> uh, that seems like their costs are really high. Yeah. Uh, I would say so. Um, I assume that this is based on, uh, you tell me, right? This is based on the production. The excise tax is all just about production, not about. So if I want to import uh, beer into Tennessee, I don't have to pay. No, you do. Uh, so I think I think the way it works is if you are a Tennessee brewer and you sell beer in Tennessee, you pay $1.29. If you ship that to Kentucky, then you pay Kentucky's tax. And similarly, uh, Anheuser-Busch, when they sell Budweiser in Oregon, pays our $2.60 tax when they sell, when, when they go to Washington, I think Washington's something like, um, uh, I don't know, it's like twice as much as ours or three times as much as ours. I think you pay, you pay the, the producer price per right. state uh, okay. in addition to your federal tax. But then, so here's the interesting thing. Uh, when people try to raise taxes, they always identify, they, they average out the excise tax paid on a, a barrel of beer to a pint or a bottle and say, that's what a consumer will pay. Uh, and this is a sleight of hand, which is, it's, it's basically impossible uh, that this will be the case unless you go to the brewery. If you buy the brewery, the beer at the brewery, then that's true. But 
the way beer is sold in America is it goes usually through three three sales before uh, the, uh, the customer buys it. Right. And each time um, a person buys it and sells it to the next person. So when a wholesaler buys it from a brewer uh, and the retailer buys it from the wholesaler, they put a margin on it. And so if you raise the initial tax, uh, you raise the price of a case or a uh, keg, then that 30% margin that the retailer puts on it uh, goes, goes, you know, the, the tax gets a 30% uh, margin and it goes up and then the retailer puts his 30% margin on it and it goes up again. So then by the time the consumer buys that, uh, pint of beer, it's now been jacked up through, through two previous purchases. And so it's a little bit disingenuous to say that you're only going to pay what the, uh, the brewer pays. Yeah, there's a term in economics called double marginalization, or in this case, triple marginalization, which describes exactly that phenomena. But I'll back up and start with this, that the first thing you do is if you just say the current price is, you know, $5 a pint, and then you add this much, and so you're, and then uh, it's going to be $5.20 a pint or whatever it is, depending on the tax you're talking about. So that's wrong, right? Because that, that incidence gets shared, one. Two, they often say this is how much revenue because there's like you know 100,000 pints being consumed a month in Oregon and there'll be 100,000 pints being consumed in Oregon after the tax right. and you times that by <laughs> 20 cents. That's wrong too because we know there's going to be fewer pints. Right. right? This is just basic economics. So uh, the first thing that's going to – so the basic answer, you know, uh, uh, theoretically, not, not the numbers, but the basic answer is that there's going to be fewer pints of beer being sold. The producers will receive less than they did prior to the tax um, on that beer. Consumers will pay more for that beer prior to the tax, right? So that's the first thing, right? Right. Uh, and unless you have crazy supplier demand curves, that's basically what's going to happen. And then the question is, how much is that wedge? And yeah, if you charge producers uh, 20 extra cents a pint, um, and you know, because these are specialized goods, they're not in a perfectly competitive market. So there is a margin. They charge a margin to the to the distributors, distributors charge a margin to the retailers, retailers charge a margin to consumers. And so yes, that can get that can get multiplied. Um, and so the real wedge becomes even even bigger uh, when it gets to it. And consumers, yes, could end up paying even more. So if you were trying to write really good public policy on a on a beer tax, what you'd want to do is maximize the you would want you'd want that to to hit that sweet spot so that it didn't drive down consumption a huge amount, but raised enough money and didn't damage the industry along the way, uh, so that you could fund you could fund the thing that you're trying to fund. If indeed your your objective was not to drive alcohol out of out of the country, like there's yeah, there's, but- some, there's some kind of balance point here where it works out <laughs> right, where you don't just end up damaging the the industry. Yeah, I mean, if you're an economist, you could write an equation, right, that tries to balance the competing needs, you know, the competing object- objectives. You want to try to discourage consumption. You want to try to increase revenue to help addiction services for those people who overconsume. Uh, I do want to make so so yes, so that would be, but you know, policymakers aren't generally talking about that. They're just basically giving you the headlines. Hey, people oh, abuse alcohol, and that's bad. And hey, we need to fund addiction services. And by the way, I'll just say that. You know, uh, my father, who's now no longer with us, but he worked for years and years and years in uh, mental health and addiction services in Oregon. And uh, I could tell you absolutely 100% true that 
in the past they've been woefully underfunded and there's a huge amount of need that's not being met. So I just want to, I want to get that out there before, before anything else. Apparently uh, the cannabis tax is going to help them, help them a lot. But, right. uh, but there's one other interesting issue. And I just wanted to sort of throw this in there before we run out of time. We sort of already run out of time. But uh, unlike a carbon tax where I'm imposing this cost on society no matter what I do, right? As long as I'm using carbon, it's going into the atmosphere and it's contributing to climate change. Right. Alcohol is not like that, right? right? There's lots and lots of people who don't abuse alcohol, use it, who use it uh, responsibly and who don't end up uh, uh, imposing any social costs. Um, and so that's what's tricky about this is that right. basically everybody's going to be paid for the people paying for the people. So in that sense, it gets a little bit more tricky to call this a Bogovian tax. And that's sort of why we end up talking more of just about a sin tax. That this is not something that, you know, it's something that as a society we frown upon and we'd write to discourage. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of very complicated things. I'll also admit that, you know, Oregon is pretty low right now. Uh, but of course, uh, a, a, a legislation that takes it from the uh, one of the lower ones to you know an outlier being the, by far the most expensive is probably not the way to go if you're trying to help uh, uh, a bunch of small businesses in a really tough time for them. Right. I mean, yeah, we. I, I just I have to say a little something about the Oregon tax, which is uh, it's clearly an effort to to cripple uh, beer and and uh, there's a the. We have two legislators who sponsored it, but it's actually been pushed by a nonprofit who's led by a guy named Mike Marshall, who who clearly uh, is adopting the the uh, tobacco approach, which is we want to cripple uh, the the industry and make sure that it goes away, and that that's that's kind of his principal goal. Um, and you know that's fine. That's he's a political actor, and that can be his goal. We did it with tobacco. Uh, that's a, that's an agenda, but he's also saying you know the, the sponsors and supporters are also saying that it won't actually affect uh, the price of beer very much, which is totally disingenuous. And they talk about Pagovian taxes, which is also seems to be a minor influence. You know interest of theirs here. They're really um, they're really interested in 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 not <laughs> in beer not or alcohol being not a, a uh, a big industry in the in in the the state. So, um, I think it's I think educated consumers and and voters should kind of if that to the extent they can with when you have these complex issues, look at all of that and kind of make a decision about you know how uh, how much if we drove all craft brewers out of Oregon, how much would alcohol uh, abuse stop? Like how much would we remediate that? How much would we be able to fund it? Is this the right funding source? Should it be funded out of the general budget, um, the general fund? Like there's a lot of kind of different difficult and thorny questions here. Um, so anyway, you, you can imagine that uh, people in the industry believe that, <laughs> that uh, they're not nearly as malignant as the sponsors think. So this, this does fall a bit to society to decide, you know, like we, we allow cars to go 55 miles an hour, knowing that a certain percentage of them will drive into trees and, uh, you know, there'll be death, but, it, uh, and it's lower than 70, but we still allow them to go to 55 because we know that if we knocked it down to 35, even fewer would die, but nobody wants to go 35. So. Yeah. To, to sort of talk like an annoying economist, I mean, that the real question should be sort of like a big cost benefit analysis. What is the right what is the right level to tax and how much economic activity is generated by by the brewers themselves and how much that benefits the, benefits the state and how much revenue that already generates for the state versus the cost of, uh, of alcohol addiction. But I'll just sort of throw in one more point is that you can't just tax 
beer. Uh, if you really want, if you're really focused on the effects of the social cost of alcohol, then you have to tax alcohol. Um, uh, full stop. So, right. Uh, and, just, and this is also hinky in that way. I, I don't think liquor is a part of it, but, uh, apparently the wine, so, no. the wine component is even more harsh than <laughs> the beer one. Some wine friends that were pinging me even more panicked than my beer friends. So, um, yeah, that's also terrible public policy. You, you want to treat industries similarly or else you're just going to drive the bad behavior into other places. Like if you don't tax alcohol, if you're going to draconianly attack, uh, beer and wine, then actual alcoholics are just going to buy cheap vodka, you know, because it's not going to be a lot cheaper. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a problem. There's a lot of things in Oregon that are underfunded. We tend to be pretty low on the list of lots of things like, for example, public education, like drug and alcohol addiction services and so on and so forth. Uh, I have a I have a startling example a startling uh, policy uh, proposal that no one's going to like, but um, we could actually think about a statewide sales tax. Ah, uh, you infidel! <laughs> take your we could actually take your we could cal- actually get more general revenue that way, and then we could spend it on things that matter. Take your California ideas back to California, infidel. <laughs> And we can pump our own gas, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Not in my not a, over my dead body. All right. Well, we should probably put a put a bow on this taxing. But we could go on actually. I've got more notes here. I, um, I, but I'm going to just let I'm going to let them go. I, I know, I do too. And I knew that was going to happen because it's it is actually an incredibly rich topic. And if you're at all uh, wonky about these things, it's uh, it's quite entertaining. So, um we apologize to those of you who aren't and just came here to hear about hazy IPAs. Yeah. Well, you can hear about this Dwenel Sour Saison, which is fabulous. I'm really enjoying this. It's a wonderful beer. Uh, we should turn the mailbag. Yeah. And I see the first mailbag entry is going to blow, has blown my mind. And it's directed right at you, my friend. Should exactly. I, should I read it? Uh, uh, or do you want to read it? Sure. You, you want to you uh, you read your shame? Okay. So our friend, Alan Taylor, uh, this is the same Alan Taylor, I assume. Yeah. The... Uh, 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 Zogel House Brewmeister. One in that, one in uh, the same, yes. <laughs> says that Wreck the Halls, which I touted the other day as one of my favorite all time uh, seasonal winter brews, and it's true, it was full sale Wreck the Halls, was a uh, sort of a winter, winter IPA, sort of a spicy IPA. It was a Matt Swihart creation, Matt Swihart of Double Mountain, now of Double Mountain. Yep. Uh, not John Harris. That's right. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. It's funny because we never did ask John. We asked John about a bunch of beers, um, and he's he's the creator of lots of famous beers, but not that one. So my apologies to Matt. And Alan Taylor uh, knows this because he, John Harris, and Matt Swihart were all full sale guys at one point, um, and and uh, none of them are now. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I mentioned this because, and I can't remember. Uh, apologies, John. I can't remember what your sort of winter IPA was called that I got. Um, uh, ecliptic winter winter IPA. Right. Um, but I said I said, oh, this is going to be great because it's going to be his like his new wreck the halls. Um, so my apologies, Matt. That's a fabulous beer. Uh, I don't know if Double Mountain brews something similar, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll be on the lookout for it. Well, Double Mountain brews 9,000 IPAs, so probably they have one that's similar. You can find one. <laughs> you look hard enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will. Matt, I'll look. Matt, Matt, Matt loves himself some hops. Yeah, I don't know where I got the idea that Wreck the Halls was John. I think the reason I, I assumed that was because uh, I think it was brewed at the um, – uh, uh, 
uh, a Pilsner Room brewery. Right. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, my the way that I connected the dots was the Pilsner Room Brewery was sort of the experimental brewery that John run, ran that was in Portland, not in Hood River. And they would produce beers, uh, sometimes one-offs, sometimes sort of seasonal beers that would appear in 22-ounce bottles. And Rack the Halls was one of those. And um, I assumed that meant that it was John's. Indeed. So, correction made. Thank you, Alan. All right. Our second one comes from Jason Wells, who is a long time, long time. Uh, by the way, uh, we rely on on our same commenter sending us commenters. I know that well over like two thousand of you listen to these podcasts every week, so you should. No, it's just it's just it's just Alan and Jason listening a thousand times each. It, well, it could be. It could be. In which case, uh, we're we're doing some serious fan service here. <laughs> like, four, like four listeners, Jeff. What do you think? Uh, the rest of you could uh, weigh in if you want, and and we're always open for. Uh, uh, criticism, which is a fun thing. So feel free. But in any case, Jason says he had just listened to the Jordan Wilson episodes, which he enjoyed. And he was noting uh, when he went to John's market, a place here in Portland, uh, the design and he writes, um, in a beer store like John's, you really see the full spectrum of beer branding. It seems like the con- the conversion of cans, probably 70% uh, on the shelves by my guess, has really opened up the color and design palette for breweries. Yeah, that's something mm-hmm. we didn't really talk about, but it's totally true. Yeah. Uh, the one quibble, and none of Jordan's are guilty, are labels that do not have the style clearly marked on the front. I like to try new beers from different breweries, but I don't want to accidentally get a hazy when I was looking for a Pilsner. Uh, sadly, I'm, I'm right here with you, Jason. Uh, I now shop without my reading glasses, so I uh, can't read the small print on the back of cans. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel that deeply. Yeah. This is this gets back to the conversation we were having about Dwinell, uh, which is language. And language is really hard to work with. And I know that breweries um, go back and forth with, with uh, identifying beers by style, but then feeling like that may actually – uh, ward people off when it's particularly to see something they don't know uh in terms of a style so yeah i, I it's hard it's a hard one it's a hard one i, I don't have when there's answer. common language it's easy yeah but when there's not common language then it's really hard yeah and it's why they put ipa on everything because everybody knows what an ipa is in america now and you put that on there and they're like i know what that is i'll buy that even if it's yeah. you know even if even if it's weird they don't even know yeah right. exactly <laughs> By the way, by the way, speaking of being old and reading glasses, the worst time is when you forget your reading glasses and you're in the store and you can't read anything. Absolutely, yeah, totally. <laughs> so you reach for the thing that's because it's orange. <laughs> I I have in the past looked up. I, I'll I'll pick up a can like Jason. Oh god! And the the print is super tiny, so I'll I'll get my phone out, which I can have bigger font on, and I'll go to the website so I can read about the beer because I can't read about it in the uh, grocery store, which is really embarrassing. But there it is. Yeah, or you can do the really super old person thing, which is to get the little micro uh, 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 magnifying glass app out, and then you use your phone's camera and it magnifies the image. Nice, nice. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's terrible going old. Ah, very nice. All right, so Jason Well also apparently writes us another thing, which is I think we might need to revoke your Pacific Northwesterner cred if you don't reflex- reflexively think or fight immediately after hearing fifty four forty. Yes. 5440 or fight, fight. Yeah, no, we totally do. But that doesn't mean remember what the issue was. The, all we remember <laughs> is 5440 or fight. That's it. I know. It's 
the northern border way up. Anyway, as a campaign slogan for James Polk, it became a rallying cry and a symbol for manifest destiny. Who we are and how we came to be as Westerners relates directly to 5440 or fight. Doesn't mean it's a great name for your brewery, by the way. No, he's uh, calling us out because we wandered around like, yeah, we remember this dimly from grammar school, but <laughs> the, 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 except for 5440 and, or fight, we don't really remember the details. And he's calling us out, which what are you going to do? I, I think I mentioned something about northern border and fighting over where it would be and uh, something. Yeah, yeah, you were you, no, you, right. you vaguely and dimly remembered it, much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> we old. Sorry, Jason. We uh, old. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jason and Alan, for your uh, mailbag entries. Um, I will never drink a wreck the halls. Think of it the same way. Indeed. Uh, kudos to Matt Swihart, my favorite, still probably my favorite. Uh, winter drink. Well, if we're well, going to mention that, then you should try Matt Swihart's fa la 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 la. Okay. Uh, Is that like it's, the same kind of thing? Yeah, it's a really super hoppy winter IPA, and it's one of my favorite uh, seasonal festive beers. Uh, it's an IPA. Yeah, thanks though. for mentioning that in March, Jeff. Yeah. that That's helpful. And you you won't remember <laughs> it next week, much less by December, so I'll, I'll try to remind you again. <laughs> okay please do yes all right a few words going out please subscribe to us on apple soundcloud spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate us five stars please that helps other listeners find the show and by the way no yeah by the way uh because we don't actually mention x-ray here but some of you listen to us on x-ray this part probably not uh i want to put up a poll and find out where people are listening so go to our at beer on a pod twitter feed uh i'm going to put up a poll on there see where people are listening uh we'd love to hear from you if you want to send in your questions or comments and please do jeff at beervonablog.com is a good place to do it or on twitter at beervonapod jeff blogs at the beervana blog and he tweets at beervana and patrick tweets at beeronomics and i would like to echo that our mailbag once stuffed full got a little skinny this week so send in your comments please yeah, uh, <laughs> we're going to ration. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't we, we don't like to ration or scrape the bottom of the barrel. So not that not that anything is the bottom of the barrel, but uh, trying to invent comments is no fun. So send them send them our way. All right, uh, Jeff, I'm going to cheers with my Dwin L. Uh, sitting pretty sour saison. All right, I've got my unicorn Czech dark lager, one of many, but a really nice example. Uh, way to go, unicorn! All right, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.